Hello. Uh, my name's Sam, if you haven't met me, uh, and this is a bit different for me, doing this for the, the first time, um, but it's a, uh, a joy to be with you this morning, and it's a joy to just get stuck into God's Word together. Um, so, I, yeah, it's, it's my prayer that wherever you're at today that you would uh, get as much joy from this passage um, and hear God speak um, through it and, and apply it to you apply it to your lives. Um, for me, it's, it's certainly been um, a key, key passage in my walk as, as a Christian, and I hope you get the same, the same joy out of it. Um, but I'm certainly aware of my own um, inadequacies as we, um, yeah, as I come to, to bring in this word, and, and so let's pray that um, God would be the one to, to speak um, and work this morning. So, yeah, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we need you. We are, um, completely, uh, helpless by, um, on our own. We are completely, um, yet yeah, in need of you to speak, um, to us, to, to teach us, to, to change our hearts, um, to reveal yourself to us, Lord. So please would you do that this morning? Um, please would you, um, help us to, uh, to hear what you would have to say? Uh, through this passage and I pray that through it that we would um, see more clearer the the amazing work that you have done um, for us um, the amazing um, salvation and uh, the riches of of uh, your inheritance that we have uh, I pray that you would speak through me that you would give me the the right words to say uh, that you would help me to um, yeah to proclaim your gospel this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder whether you've experienced uh, a situation where you something that you thought thought looked really good uh, on the outside or at face value turned out to be the opposite or or not so good on the inside. Maybe it was that you know really succulent looking piece of fruit that you left on the bench for a couple of weeks. Or maybe it might have been that, you know, that cheap tool, that cheap hammer drill or something that you picked up because it was just too good of a bargain to ignore only to bring it home and realise that it was made up of, of substandard components. Uh, or maybe, maybe it was the actions of a loved one. Um, maybe you felt showered with affection only to realise that they had uh, ulterior motives. Um, I think either way we... We can see through those experiences that we have um, a sense for what is on the inside that uh, that counts, that reveals uh, something or someone's true nature. And in our passage today, we see the same. Um, we see two uh, differing views about that reality, but we but we see in the end that, um, uh, particularly for for us as people, our our inner being, our hearts, um, are where the true uh, problem lies, and they reveal um, reveal our nature. So, let's get uh, stuck into it. We're going to um, see from the passage uh, today. We're going to just work through it. So, a question from the Pharisees in the first few verses, and we'll see hearts that are far from God um, in Jesus' first response. And in Jesus' second response, we see hearts that defile. 
And then where do we go from here? So a question from the Pharisees. So we're setting the scene here with a familiar conversation between uh, the Pharisees, the the broader crowd, uh, and with Jesus and his disciples. In the lead up to chapter 7 of Mark's gospel, we have uh, three significant miracles presented in the second half of chapter 6. So if you might remember, we have the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, we have Jesus walking on water, where he demonstrates his control over creation by, by walking out across the stormy waters to meet his disciples, calming them and the water um, as he does so. Um, and in the final stages of chapter 6, we have um, a comparatively short yet significant um, event when the crowds were so desperate to see their sick people healed that they lay them out um, where they thought Jesus might go, you know, throughout several villages and towns uh, just to have Jesus touch them. So the last two verses of chapter 6 read, And where he, Jesus, came, in villages, cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Now notice how, how it was their touch that led to them being made well as we come to the first part of chapter 7. Now the Pharisees' concerns um, and questioning that we have at the start of chapter 7 lies in stark contrast uh, to these miracles. Do we see them make remarks of awe and wonder at Jesus' power? Do we hear questions about um, his divine nature, wondering where, where, he, where he got his power from? Um, no. So let's, let's read those first few verses in, in chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to, to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? To us, this, this might seem to come a bit from left field, right? What we, what we want to ask the Pharisees in response is, you know, have you not heard? Jesus has calmed the winds. He's provided sustenance to thousands. He's healed the sick. Ask him about that. How did that happen? What's, what's going on? No, their, their question is, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? I think at this point, it's, it's easy for us to just cast, cast the Pharisees aside, cast them off as, you know, as a backward people, as totally off the charts. And we, and we so often do when we read passages like this. But I think it, it, it's good to just take the time to understand where their question comes from, understand their, their concerns and why they're asking that. And I think by doing so, I think it gives us a better opportunity to hear Jesus' responses uh, and to reflect on our own lives um, so that we don't fall into the same trap. 
So the Pharisees, they were a social movement at the time um, and, and a school of thought um, within Jewish society um, and they were particularly concerned around moral purity and holiness. The Pharisees, they, they had a vision and that vision was that the nation of Israel would be holy and set apart. And you know what? They wanted your, your everyday Jewish person to know that they could experience God in the everyday. They could be holy to the Lord. They could be set apart. Pretty great vision so far. They also wanted to protect uh, Judaism from outside uh, pagan influences and uphold the, the distinctiveness of the people of Israel. But how did they go about uh, bringing this vision? Well, they, they set out to prescribe a system of laws that were very practic- practical and applicable to the everyday person. And you see how this, this might have played out or how it might have originated. So you, you would have had people coming to, coming to the temple and asking questions like, okay, so priest, Psalm 24 tells me I need to have clean hands and a pure heart. Particularly, you know, if I want to be in God's presence, I need to have clean hands and a pure heart. But how? How do I get the clean hands and pure heart that God is talking about? And over time, a system of teaching and regulation, a way of applying some of the teachings that we do see in Scripture in the Old Testament, gradually evolved and became known as the tradition of the elders that's referred to in the passage. Relevant to uh, today's passage is that the tradition of the elders contained a lot of detailed, practical rules that one must practice and apply if they were to maintain ritual purity and thereby be able to be in God's presence. Some of this was an extension of ceremonial regulations set out in Exodus specifically for priests, for example, um, and they sought to apply it to the general population. Um, that is the general population within within God's people, within the, the, the Israelites. And, and it involved requirements for washing and cleaning, as is mentioned in verses 3 and 4. The Jews would wash their hands rigorously. If they went to the marketplace, they couldn't eat until they washed. There, and there were a plethora of other rules surrounding even where to place your napkins at the dining table, um, how and when one should pray, etc., etc. And And remember the intention behind this. The Pharisees wanted the the Jewish people to be holy, to be set apart, to be distinct. And the way that they would achieve this was by holding strictly to these traditions, lest they be considered defiled or unclean. So along comes Jesus, and he's he's a prominent Jew. He's gaining lots of followers, um, very well known. He's performing miracles, but not upholding these traditions. Well, we better ask him then, why, why not? Does he not want Israel to be holy, to be set apart? But the responses that we see from, from Jesus here that, that Mark gives us um, are, are pretty strong and blunt and, and significant. Um, we might see that um, the Pharisees' intentions may, may have started off good, um, but certainly the situation uh, that Mark describes here, um, they've, they've gone beyond anything that's, that's good. So we see two responses. So the first is a response from within the framework that the Pharisees are working with, um, and it reveals 
at best the inconsistency of the Pharisees, but more more likely um, the the blunt reality that they have departed and left behind the very word of God. Jesus' use of the word hypocrite here is the only example of of that word in Mark's gospel, um, even though there are plenty of other instances of um, conflict and controversy between Jesus and religious leaders recorded by Mark. But this is the only time that Mark includes the use of that specific word for uh, hypocrite. He, he wants us to see, uh, and, and Jesus wants us to take note of what's going on here. And I think the first part of his reference there to Isaiah 29, um, that's 29 verse 13, sums it up well. This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that's, that's the definition of, of a hypocrite really, isn't it? There's a facade here that appears to be good and honouring to God. They say the right things. They might appear to be righteous or to be doing good, but, but behind the scenes, underneath their internal being, um, their heart, this place from which comes all of their decisions, personality, motives uh, and actions, um, Jesus makes, makes the charge that the hearts of the people are far, far away from him. They're not in line with God's will and they're not in line with God's heart. And he gives us this example of Korban. So it's, it's, it's not something that's readily familiar to us, um, but it was a part of this tradition of the elders um, that we've previously looked at. Essentially, it was a way that somebody could set aside some amount of wealth or property as given to God to be used, you know, for example, to be used by the temple. The problem was that it had outgrown its initial purpose and, and was now being used um, by sons in particular to shirk their familial responsibilities. If we, if we go back even further in, in um, the history of the Israelites and back to when uh, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, he was, he was revealing to the Israelite people the ways in which he desired the Israelites to live for their good um, and for their flourishing. Uh, one of these commandments is from, from Exodus 22, honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. So that's pretty pretty important, yeah? God saves his people from Egypt. He, he calls them to himself and calls Moses to be their representative. And this is the clear calling by which they are to live, to be God's people, to be set apart. And in particular, that call to honour your father and mother had financial overtones to it. So there was, you know, an expectation to to support parents when they needed financial support, particularly as they grew older um, or if, if they were experiencing sickness, for example. You've got to remember that there there wasn't uh, the welfare system that we have today, no, no super, no aged care um, homes or support. Um, so there was really this expectation from within the family unit that that support would be there. The Pharisees had, had emphasised so much, though, the, the nature of, of vows that um, they'd created this, this loophole by which somebody could get out from this obligation to support their families by declaring um, their property and wealth as, as set aside. So never mind your, your, your elderly uh, sick mother or your financially desperate father. This money over here, nah, you can't, you can't touch that. It's, it's been set aside. It's been given to God. 
And it sort of sounds righteous, right, or upright, but, but it misses the thrust um, of God's word and his law. And that's reflected um, in Jesus' uh, response um, and his strong language. The, the tradition that the Pharisees were practicing, these religious observances that they were emphasizing, had come to replace the word of God. In trying to attain this righteousness and cleanliness before God through all these outward observances and, and regulations, they had rejected God's word in place of the tradition of men. And their hearts had become far from him. But we go even further to, to Jesus' second response. And he goes even further beyond working from within the, the framework that the, that the Pharisees would understand to go even deeper to, to talk about the true nature of, of purity and defilement itself. So the question following his, uh, Jesus' first response is, what, what was the key issue here? What, what needed to be resolved? If, if you were perhaps uh, a well-meaning Pharisee, you might be tempted to say, well, we, we just got to do better. We've wandered off the road a bit here, but we have to pull our socks up and do everything that we can uh, to obey God, to follow him, to, re- to remain holy and separate from those other nations around us. And I think, uh, I think Mark has aptly placed this next passage to, to show us that, um, while that while there are truths to that, that we would have it the wrong way around. And Jesus' response goes even further than denouncing the, the extra-scriptural observances of the Pharisees to a radical pronouncement about the nature of defilement and purity itself and how this relates to the purity laws in the Old Testament. Verses 14 to 23 seem to actually be a more direct response to the original question that the Pharisees um, had asked. And Jesus starts by making a bold statement. There is nothing, nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So the the first half of that statement would have been controversial, but at least intelligible to the crowds that were listening. They, They would have perhaps grasped what he's trying to say, even if they disagree. But how can this be? Surely it is all those things out there that make me defiled. The second half, though, would have been a bit more muddy. Jesus says, the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Is he talking about what we say? Is he saying that, you know, our our hair or nails are somehow unclean because they come out of us? Even even Jesus' disciples are evidently confused, and which which is why he needs to provide some further guidance once they're away from the crowds. And his defense of the first half of his statement is is straightforward but significant. Food and the heart have nothing to do with each other, essentially. So when you when you eat food, it goes into your mouth, down your esophagus, into your stomach, and then it's expelled out of you. At what point during that process does it affect your heart? We've seen from Isaiah that the hearts of the Pharisees had become far from God. Well, whatever it was that made this happen, it mustn't have been food. Even the Judaic understanding of feces at the time was that they were not necessarily ritually impure. They might have been offensive, but not 
not impure. So if, if that's the case, then how can it be food that, that defiles someone? Mark adds uh, an editorial remark here confirming what Jesus seems to be suggesting. He writes, Thus he declared all foods clean. And notice here the use of the word declare. Jesus is not simply minimizing, saying, you know, oh, don't worry about it. A bit of pork never did anyone any harm. He's not just dismissing those Old Testament laws or, or throwing them out. He's actually claiming the authority to say, these foods are now clean. I have the authority to pronounce them clean. To declare that those laws that were put in place as an aid to move you towards God, to remind you of your set-apartness as a people, those laws have now been fulfilled. Jesus is claiming the authority to, to cleanse and to make clean. Jesus then goes on to explain the second half of his, of, of his statement. Uh, he says, The things that come out of a person are what defile him. And he explains further, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And finally, we see the, the crux of the issue here, right? It's, it's the heart. The disciples would have understood the heart to be the very centre uh, of a person's being, the, the origin of their, their personality. All of their decisions, thoughts, their behaviours, uh, all of their actions originated from the heart. But rather than things from the outside making the heart corrupt, Jesus firmly claims that the problem is with the heart itself. And you'll notice the mixture of categories in, in the list of products of the heart, from you know, thoughts to, to feelings like envy and pride to more outward actions. It, it's, very, it's comprehensive. It covers uh, everything and it all comes from the heart. The Pharisees were thinking outside in. If only we can eliminate all these things on the outside from defiling us, then we will be pure, undefiled, able to stand before God. But their situation now seems hopeless because the very thing they are trying to keep clean is the source of defilement itself. And therefore, if the, if the Pharisees desire holiness, cleanliness, to stand in God's presence, then their heart needs to change. And even more than that, they need a heart that's, that's cleansed, that's made new. So where do we go from here? Um, is all this talk of Jewish, Jewish purity laws and Old Testament commandments really relevant uh, to us? Well, yeah, I would propose to you that this passage is, is just as relevant to us today as it was to Mark just as relevant as it was to the disciples hearing Jesus speak these words. If it's the heart that is what defiles, then we're all in the same boat, right? We would all have a heart that defiles. So I wonder, I wonder if you feel this in your life. I wonder if you notice it. What does it look like for you? Tim Keller writes uh, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he says... When most people think of idols, they have in mind literal statues. Uh, 
Yet while traditional idol worship still occurs in many places of the world, internal idol worship within the heart is universal. In Ezekiel 14.3, God says about the elders of Israel, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. Like us, the elders might have responded to this charge. Idols? What, what idols? I don't see any idols. God was saying that the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the centre of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfilment if we attain them. So maybe you feel this in your relationships. It might be that you feel insecure, that you can never measure up to any of your friends' or spouses' standards. Maybe you feel unlovable, unworthy of affection or friendship. And so you devote most of your time and energy into seeking that reassurance and love from those around you. You might, you might tell yourself that if only I can get that perfect friendship, relationship, marriage, someone to love me, then I'll be happy. Maybe you see it in your work or your study, the endless hours, the drive to keep moving forward to the next bigger and better opportunity, or, or you, could, you could go the other way and it might actually be your rest and your free time that you value over everything else and you would go to the ends of the earth just to protect that. Or maybe you feel this in your family, in, in our world that's, that's all about the gram. It can be really easy to be convinced that if I have the, the, the cleanest, most aesthetic home with, with two great little children running around, then, then I will know that I'm significant, then I will know that I've made an impact, then I will know that I'm worth something. For me, I find that the best um, opportunities to delve deeper into these things is to to ask myself questions like, what is the thing that if you lost it would bring you the most despair? Or what is the one thing that you feel like you could never live without? Take time to reflect on these questions yourself. Uh, Take the time to think about your own reactions to circumstances in your life and what they might say about what's going on in your heart, what you're desiring. Even good things that you're placing uh, in the role of God. If you're, you're angry or stressed or, or feel overwhelmed with, with lust or greed, don't just dismiss those thoughts, but, but ask yourself, what is, what is my heart desiring here? What good thing am I holding up as something ultimate that I think I need to be significant or happy or clean? Just like the Pharisees and scribes in Mark, we're all trying to prove ourselves, to show ourselves as clean, to show ourselves as significant and distinct, as as set apart. We do this by trying to wash ourselves through our actions, our words, thinking that if only I can achieve this goal, get this relationship, earn this amount of money, tick off this certain amount of spiritual disciplines each day, then then I'll be happy. Then I'll be right with God, then he'll accept me. 
But the problem is, is that this outside-in way of doing things never achieves what it's set out to. We'll find ourselves in the same boat as the Pharisees with hearts that are far from God. No. We need cleansing from the inside out. You know, another key section of, of the purity laws in the Old Testament was to prepare the, the high priest for the Day of Atonement. This, this happened uh, once a year and was the most important day on the Jewish calendar, the day when the sins of the people would be atoned for. The priest would, would go into seclusion one week in advance so that he could ensure he only eats the right food and doesn't become sick or un, unclean in any other way. Then on the day, there would be a strict bathing and washing schedule, um, all, in, all in public, so that the people could know that he was representing them in the right way. And right before the main event, the, the priest would change into to fresh, clean, pure white linen robes to make sure that there wasn't a speck, not an iota of, of germs or uncleanness on him so that he could finally stand in God's presence to atone for all the sins of the people. So the work that went into preparing for this day was uh, incredible. But then we look at uh, a passage in in chapter 3 of of Zechariah, and it seems um, intriguing given this, given the lengths to which the high priest would go to ensure that he is... um, supremely clean and ready to stand in God's presence. In, in, in chapter 3 of Zechariah, Zechariah has a, has a vision and he's transported into the temple on the Day of Atonement, right into the place where, where God was said to have dwelt, where the high priest would go only once per year um, on that Day of Atonement. And he sees Joshua, the high priest. He's standing before the Lord He's ready to atone for the sins of the people. But there's just one, one little issue. He's, he's covered in soiled and filthy clothing. How could this be? It can't be. He needs to be clean and pure in order to atone for the sins of Israel. But you see here that Zechariah gets a glimpse of how God sees us no matter how much we try and try to make ourselves righteous and good before God, no matter how much we try and scrub ourselves clean, we're hopeless. So in in the vision, in Zechariah's vision, we expect God to, to strike Joshua down for representing the people in such an, an, an inadequate state, right? But this is not what happens. Um, he's standing before God himself and God says, remove the filthy garments from him. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Later on in that chapter, he goes on to explain, uh, explain further and prophesy further. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch and I will, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. When that branch finally came, the the new Joshua, that Jesus, much like the Pharisees, he cared about holiness and purity, but he knew that to achieve true righteousness for his people uh, and set them apart, 
he would need to do more than just implement a new system or tradition. He would need to go to the cross and die for his people. Paul describes it this way in his second letter to the Corinthians. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in verse 17 of that same chapter, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Friends, if you're in Christ, this is where your hope is, not in love or money or friends, family or in our work, but in Christ. He has clothed us in pure clothing. He has given us a new heart. He has declared us righteous. He has given us his own righteousness. He has cleansed us by his own blood. This frees us to to follow him, to walk um, in a way that he calls us to and desires us to. It enables us to come before him in prayer and be be honest about the the um, the war that that wages within us, the the idols of our heart that we see. And if you're not yet following Jesus, he offers you not just a new way. Uh, to try and clean yourself, a new teaching or tradition, but is offering you fresh white linen to take away your iniquity in a day and give you his righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are yeah, in awe of your salvation, your, your love and your grace uh, toward us that centers um, on the blood of Christ, Lord. We thank you for the ways that you have removed our iniquity from us. You have cleansed us, you have washed us, you have given us uh, a new heart and made us a new creation. Lord, please would you, would you help us to, to live in light of that, knowing that that is done, that that is completed, and that we don't have to try and continue scrubbing, uh, continue washing. Lord, but we are, we are free to, to, uh, to follow you, to live in, in a way that honours you uh, and to trust you, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to... Sing in response. Uh, we're going to sing in, in Christ alone. My hope is found. He is our light. He is our strength. Um, he is our song. So I'd invite you all to stand together and we'll sing. <laughs>